Today we hear from the second letter of Simeon Peter, a disciple of Christ, most likely writing in the first century to the early Christian communities of Asia Minor. Let us open our hearts, our minds, our ears, our souls across time and space. And imagine we're dropping in to listen mid-letter as these words are first read aloud in those communities 2000 years ago. We hear today from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the message. Friends, don't overlook the obvious here. With God, one day is as good as a thousand years and a thousand years as good as one day. God isn't late with the promise as some of us measure lateness. God is restraining God's self on account of you, holding back the end because God doesn't want anyone lost. God's giving everyone time and space to change. But when the day of God's judgment does come, it will be unannounced, like a thief. The sky will collapse with a thunderous bang, everything disintegrating in a huge conflagration, earth and all its works exposed to the scrutiny of judgment. Since everything here today might well be gone tomorrow, do you see how essential it is to live a holy life? Daily expect the, God of, the day of God eager for its arrival. The galaxies will burn up and the elements melt down that day, but we will hardly notice for we will be looking the other way, ready for the promised new heavens and the promised new earth all landscaped with righteousness. So my dear friends, since this is what you have to look forward to, do your very best to be found living at your best in purity and peace. Interpret our master's patient restraint for what it is, salvation, for the word of God in spirit, for the word of God among us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anne. Would you join me in prayer? God, as we light our Advent candles of hope and peace, as we prepare to share in your holy meal together, we ask that you would help us keep our spiritual lamps trimmed and burning, ready for you in all the ways you appear to us, in the ways that you come to us once again. And we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer, and let the people say, amen. It is good to see all of you this morning. Uh, some of you know that I am in South Florida where I've been for the past two weeks. And I'm grateful to the congregation and our leadership, to our staff who have been patient while I have come here to be with my mother in her last weeks of life. It has been a privilege and a place I would know where rather be. And it makes me realize the preciousness of our community. It also makes me appreciate the normalization of working remotely at this time. The first 
sentence of the passage that Anne just read has stuck in my brain the past several weeks as well. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. It has me asking, what does it mean to sink into God's time? When we read this sentence, nearly two centuries after it was written, we are aware that these are a people impatient for the second coming of Christ. It had only been about 30 years since he had been crucified on the cross, but they could not wait for him to get back. And they were also people who were falling prey to false teachers theological and spiritual charlatans. They were starting to lose their faith, some of them. And Paul and Peter in this letter were trying to keep them in the fold, trying to keep them faithful, trying to keep them on the path, on the way. And so he's urging them to be patient. He's saying, y'all need to just chill a second. It's gonna change. Just be ready. When you stop and think about time and possibly what God's time is, we, we know that time is a plastic sort of thing. It bends and, and stretches according to our attention. If you're a child in the back seat of a car on a two-hour journey, time seems like it will never end. For those of us who've gone past the ages of 40 or 50, it seems like time is speeding up, that the laps around the sun keep getting faster and faster. I gave us this cover image of a person looking out at the Milky Way and the stars because I often find to try to get a sense of God's time, it helps me to look up at the night sky and just pause for a moment, especially if I can get to a place where there's less light pollution and really wonder of all that's out there, the vastness of it the unfathomableness of what a light year really is, trillions of miles of distance. Two advents ago, I got hooked on this Netflix docuseries. It's from National Geographic called One Strange Rock. And it's all about astronauts, people who've been up in the skies for months, some of them even cumulative years, circling our globe. That's a picture there of the International Space Station, which many of them served on. It so inspired me, their perspective on our world and what it means to look down at this planet on a daily basis as you're spinning around it at 18,000 miles an hour. Occasionally for inspiration, I go on NASA's website just to look up when it's going to pass over Cambridge or Boston again so I can watch it go over to give me a little bit of perspective. You can see how it looks from the space station when you look back at our nation. And it helps me to think of all the ways we get out of sorts with one another, all the ways we get divided, all the problems that we, we worry about and strive for. What does it look like from God's perspective? The people in Asia Minor in those early churches were impatient wanting Jesus to come again, again and rescue them. As the letter says, God is restraining God's self on account of you, holding back the end because God doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. The letter makes me realize that we human beings have always been impatient. Those folks are impatient for Jesus to come again and relieve them of their sorrows. We're impatient for this pandemic to end and all the restrictions that it requires of us. 
Some of us have been impatient for the government to change hands to match more with our political views. Some of us get impatient with people we work with or people we go to school with or family members. When we hear these kinds of apocalyptic texts, which apocalyptic actually means revealing, we hear them because in this season of Advent, we're trying to sharpen our focus of what it means to look for and welcome God just as we welcome a little baby, just as we first welcome the Christ child. As I like to remind us, most of the world missed it that night, but we're still proclaiming it two millennia later. And how often do we miss God trying to break open into our lives, trying to change us, to transform us, to help us keep on track? So all this talk of time and eternity made me think of the distinction often made in theological and philosophical cir circles of chronos versus kairos. And you get a little theological lesson here. Go back to chronos there a second, Jenna. Chronos, from which we get the word chronological or chronic or chronicle, is the time you and I are most familiar with. It's sequential time, the minutes and hours that we count, the days, weeks, months, years, the way we keep our calendars on our phone, on our laptops, on pieces of paper, decades and centuries sometimes. But most of us stay in the minute and hours. That's where we live, moment by moment, trying to get through the day, rushing here and there. Kairos, however, is something very different. In the ancient Greek, it meant the right critical opportune moment for something to happen. In modern Greek, it can be used just to describe the weather, what's happening right around us right now. And in Christian theology, and the way it's often used in the New Testament, kairos is that appointed time in the purpose of God, the time when God acts, the time when, if we're careful, we become aware of God. Kairos is what many philosophers and mystics would refer to as deep time, the time where the world seems to stop entirely. You can measure this Kairos time by the way you take deep breaths. If you take one or two or three with me there at home, of what it means to take that time to really take a deep inhalation and a deep exhalation. You can measure kairos by the way you share a laugh with people you love, or the way you look at a beautiful sunset, or look out at the night sky. Kairos is about quality, about when we have the opportunity to move forward in the present, untethered by any moving clock or calendar, having the courage to set down our phones and our calendars for a moment. Franciscan friar and author Richard Rohr refers to Kairos as those moments in life when you stop and say, oh my God, this is it. I get it. Or this is as perfect as it can be. It doesn't get any better than this. Kairos moments in life can feed your soul like fuel for many months at a time. They're essential to our spiritual nourishment. There's this kind of serendipity, a feeling of seizing an opportunity where everything can stand still for a moment and, and everything feels possible. When we really get into Kairos time, we lose track of Kronos time. It's a sort of state of flow that gets activated and it cannot really be measured, but just experienced. Kairos time is the time that you and I, as Christians, as followers of Christ, as recipients of this letter from Peter, as people of the way, 
Kairos time is what we need to be striving for all the time, sinking into it, coming back to it again and again. That's why we offer and encourage regular opportunities for all of us to dig into this well of Kairos time for the spiritual nourishment and encouragement we're striving for here. Just like when we light our Advent candles at home, taking a moment for that light to shine in the darkness, or when we participate in our worship and meditation together throughout the week, even on Zoom, or when we take time just to say a word of thanks or grace, a moment of quiet before every single meal, no matter where we are, remembering that each meal, each source of nourishment is a gift from God. If you aren't doing this regularly, I want to encourage you as your pastor to start doing it as often as possible. Kairos time is when we step out into nature, like I often to, like to do, and just go by the water and see the vastness of the infinite azure. We've been trying some of that with our outdoor worship this past fall and summer, on, even on these hikes on where we get a little closer to the sky or on flat ground in our memorial park, and we're still going to try to continue that as we go into the winter. It's hard, I think, to commit to Kairos time in the 24-7 demands of the culture we live in, but we all have the choice, and God gives us the choice. Some of the questions are, am I going to make this time hard? Am I going to get in my own way? Am I going to think it's all about me? Am I going to let others trip me up? Or am I going to open my gaze, my attention to the heavens, to the wonders of creation? Am I going to take the time to listen for God's still small voice, trying desperately to get my attention? Am I going to turn off the phone, the clock, the social media long enough to hear God's voice? And furthermore, am I going to live my life in a way that has purpose and meaning? Am I going to allow myself that whatever time God gives me, I'm going to become enlightened, elucidated. I'm going to come out of whatever I'm going through better and stronger and wiser. Am I going to let myself get bogged down by petty, mundane things that we all have to deal with? The wrench, the mortgage, the annoying people, the bills, the illnesses. Or am I going to learn from them? Am I going to be on the lookout for ways to serve others? Am I going to strive for ways to leave my corner of the world better than I found it? As one of the scientists in our congregation reminded me this summer, the human race has seen at least one major global pandemic about once a century for the past four or five centuries. We've also seen a rise in fascism and popular demagoguery. Powers rise, powers fall, souls come in and out of our lives. Some of us, like Betty Gray and my mother, are given 87 years. Some of us, like Ginny, Lucille, are given 90 plus years, or Bertha is given over 100. Some of us, like little Vicky, were given only 16 months. And the joy of her laugh and her smile stays with her family and with those who knew her. Some, like our friend Jason, were only given 29, but his beautiful bass baritone voice still echoes in our ears and his picture is still in our hallway. Some of us, like Jeff in his 50s, went too soon, and yet his ebullient spirit and his pastoral care lingers on, even on television and radio stations. As people of faith, as followers of Christ, we are called to live in the time frame of eternity. 
And when we're willing to put on the lens of eternity, it frames everything we do here on earth. It has a way of rearranging us, of realigning our priorities, of helping us fix our gaze on new heavens and the promised new earth, landscaped with righteousness, and to be prepared so that when Christ comes to us, whether it's a small baby, whether it's a stranger needing to be fed, clothed, comforted, tended to, like we read about two weeks ago, or whether in an unexpected blaze of glory, like a thief in the night that we just heard about, however Christ will come, we are ready to welcome Christ, paying attention, living good and holy lives, working for God's purposes here among us, living into the peace that passes all understanding. Now you'll see there a picture of me with my mom who left us on Wednesday night. That picture was taken about two years ago. She had just recovered from major surgery, had received a second terminal diagnosis, and yet she insisted that we go to opening night at the Kansas City Symphony, and she called up to make sure they'd have a wheelchair ready for her and instructed me on how to get her around. My mother lived life very fully, and Sarah shared with you the words about her. She traveled all over the world. She made friends wherever she went. She had a deep Christian faith and was convinced of where she was headed. And she was happy to share that faith with anyone who would listen. Even as she was living out her last days down here in Florida, she started two new Bible studies. She played piano for the chapel services where I'm gonna sing this afternoon. And she kept, she was so concerned that the people she lived among in their last days didn't know where they were going and she wanted to help them figure it out. My mom was also an avid bridge player, a dying art of a game. Some of you may know it, some of you may not, but as my sister put it in her obituary, she thought that life was too short to underbid your hand. Time sort of stood still as she and I gathered at her bedside and said prayers together and looked over her life and memory. Both of us grateful for what she had had. It was hard for her the first week I was here to leave this earthly party. She never wanted to leave a party too soon. But as I watched her deteriorate physically in front of me, as I started caring for her in the ways that she had cared for me when I first came into this life, as we prayed and sang and as she begged God to take her, I was able to experience some Kairos time, God's time, eternity. As I sang to her then, I share with you now. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith we can see it afar. For our Savior lies over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet by and by. We shall meet on that beautiful shore.
Amen. Invite us to continue singing. Of eternal love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, God the Alpha and Omega, God the Source, the Ending Be. Of the things that are that have been, and that future years shall see. Evermore and evermore. This the one whom heaven taught singers sang of old with one accord, whom the scriptures of the prophets promised in their faithful word. Emmanuel shines the long expected. Let creation praise its Lord evermore.